The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Father, we do thank you for dividing that uh, curtain, for cutting the, the veil in two, for removing the wall that separated the sacred from the secular. We thank you that you've tore that and you are reigning supreme over all of creation. Jesus is the Lord of everything right now. And there is no sacred. There is no secular. It's all sacred before God. It's all laid bare before the eyes to whom we must give an account. This is all yours. And Jesus, I pray today that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that you would um, allow the people to hear uh, what you want to say. Jesus often said they hear, but they don't hear. They see, but they don't see. Um, let us hear your word today. Um, let us see the goodness of the almighty God and let us understand rightly. This is all, Father, for your glory, uh, for your kingdom's sake, and uh, for the fame and the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, uh, we're going to jump right into it today. We've got a lot of people going on vacation. This is a couple, we've got a couple weeks here getting the summer vacations in before school is back. We got to go school shopping with my son. He's going to kindergarten this year. He is all avengered up and ready to rock, all right? Um, but listen, I'm just going to tell you right now, okay? You might as well buckle up. You might as well grab a coffee or six because it's going to be a long ride. All right, this is going to be a long ride. We're going to start today. We're going to work our way through the book of Genesis, 50 chapters, okay? 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. Uh, we're going to be here for just over a year. Uh, this is definitely our most ambitious undertaking so far, uh, but I'm excited to dig in and I'm excited to see what God has in store for us. Uh, today, I'm only going to get one verse. Everybody say one verse. I'm going to get one verse through... 50 chapters, okay? So I'm going to make a lot of headway today, okay? Basically, today is an intro to the book of Genesis, all right? Many people just jump right in into reading Genesis, and they have no idea the context. They don't know the historical, the literary context, what the book's about, where it was situated, when it was written, who wrote it. And if you just jump right in, um, you miss a lot. You really miss a lot. This is why study Bibles try to help you out by giving you a little intro to the book, and they give you some information and such. Um, what I've tried to do is I try to go before you and I try to answer some frequently asked questions. I tried to answer some big picture questions. I put together, we got a commentary put together. Actually, part, uh, our, one of our founding pastors, Pastor Mark Driscoll, put this together. And I've offered it for you guys free of charge. I put it on a post on the city. Um, if it came up in your email, you won't see it in your email. You'll have to go to the city and there'll be, I attached it. There's an attachment there and it's called uh, the Genesis book. And it's about a hundred page commentary, devotional. It's got questions. It's got a little catechism for your kids that you can, um, like 60 questions that you can ask, question and answers to, to ask your kids and to talk about over the dinner table to get them talking about the book of Genesis and, and some of the stuff. So you want to search that. You want to look that up. It uh, should be on the front page of the city. You can sign up for the city out there. Also in that post, I linked... Um, to another commentary, and it's a longer commentary. It's by Bruce Watke. It's one of them. I read about 15 commentaries in pre preparing for this sermon series, and that's probably the most helpful, the most concise, um, the most accessible one. So I just linked it in that post as well. You can buy that. It's like 20 bucks or something on Amazon. Um, and you, it takes you, gives you an intro to the book, and then it just takes you verse by verse to the book, and it really breaks down the Hebrew, breaks down what's going on. It'll give you a really good 
uh, understanding. So as learners, it's one of the things I'm challenging you to do. Um, buy a commentary, read through a commentary. It's going to expand your, your understanding, your knowledge, and it's going to make even our worship songs. When we're singing these songs up here, um, I'll be honest to tell you, my worship experience is so much more heartfelt sometimes because I'm understanding what the heck these words mean. When it says, I lift my Ebenezer, most of us are like, I lift my, oh my, what does Scrooge have anything to do with this? Right? And, and Ebenezer literally means like a, like a, like a monument or like, like if you build something to remember the Lord, like you, it's like a devotion. Like sometimes every time I see this cross or every time I see this thing, it reminds me of what God has done in my life. That's what an Ebenezer is. So when it's a, asking that, you know, to lift that up, that's what it's kind of, it's talking about. There's a lot of things in our, in our, um, Songs that if you really understand what's going on, they'll be a lot more meaningful to you. So get that. This is going to be the intro to Genesis today. Get those commentaries. Read that stuff um, on the city. And uh, I think it'll be a really good benefit to you. Uh, Husbands, wives, read it with your wives. Discuss it at dinner after the kids go to bed. Um, It's a great opportunity. For me, there's nothing sexier in my world than to see my wife curled up with a commentary. Okay, I'm just going to tell you. I'm just going to throw that out there just the way it is. All right. I like my wife studying the Word of God. I like to see uh, that kind of stuff going on. All right. So are we ready to get started in the book of Genesis? We, we ready? We're buckled up. We're ready. Okay. I'm just going to let you know this is an intro. So this is going to be a little more intellectual today. It's going to be um, a little more cognitive. Might feel a little bit like a, a, a college lecture just because uh, this is an intro, and I want to set us up for the rest of the, of the book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to bring it home at the end, but, but we'll see. Okay, so we're ready to go. We're ready to go? Okay, here we go. Genesis is a unique book. We get its names from the first words in the book, in the beginning. All right, Genesis means beginning. It's the beginnings of a lot of things. Genesis is a book about beginnings. It's about the beginnings of creation, the beginnings of human history, The beginnings of life, death, everything starts in Genesis and then subsequently everything ends in the book of Revelation. So Genesis begins our story and Revelation ends the story of the Bible. Okay, all of creation gets wrapped up in Revelation. The author of Genesis is Moses. Some people like to argue about this. If you've been to college, I'm sure you've heard some arguments about this. But Jesus tells us in Mark 12, 26 that Moses was its author. And we believe Jesus, right? He, he had this thing going for him. Jesus was God, so we kind of trust him. Okay? We think he knows who wrote the book of Genesis. So Moses wrote Genesis, and it's the first part of what is known as the Pentateuch. All right? The Pentateuch means, the word literally means, a five-part book. Okay? So Genesis is a part of a five-part book called the Pentateuch, all written by Moses. Now, I'm right, I'm a... A reader right now, I'm in the middle of, well, what's five parts, but more to come, call, a book called The Game of Thrones, okay? I'm on book three of a five-part series right now with more to come. It's, you can't just read one of them and get the story, right? You can't just watch one of the Lord of the Rings trilogies and understand what's going on, right? You can't just watch one Star Wars and know what's going on, right? You've got, it's, it's part of a bigger story. So, so... With Genesis. Now, this is important. Genesis is the first part of a five part book written by Moses known as the Pentateuch. All right? The Pentateuch consists of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right? That's a big book, right? We don't, we, do we wonder why they split that mug up, right? 
Who's going to jump into that, you know, epic tale with genealogy as long as your leg, right? Nobody. So they broke it up to make it a little more teachable, a little more understandable. These books were divided into separate books already by the time of the Jewish historian Josephus in the early first century. So he makes mention of them. Um, So they were already divided up by then. So the Pentateuch is one book with five parts and Genesis is the first part. Moses wrote this book about 1400 years before the birth of Jesus, which means that this book was penned approximately 3500 years ago. All right. How many of you often read books that are 3,500 years old? Anybody busting out Homer and just in your, home t- in your time and just wanting to read those? Very few of us, right? So it's important for us to understand that this book that we're reading and that we're going to be studying over the next year, it's an ancient and sacred text. In our day and age, books move across the bestsellers list every month and they disappear into oblivion to never be heard of again. Today's bestseller list is tomorrow's garage sale book. Genesis is different. It's time-tested, 34, 3,500 years time-tested. It's time-tested truth. People have staked their eternity on this book for thousands of years. People have gone to Genesis for thousands of years to learn about God, to learn about humanity, to learn about creation, and to learn about the gospel. But it's very important for us to understand and and know why was this book written? What context, what was the context that this book was written into? Many people wrongly think that this was, you know, that somebody was there watching this and they were just writing it down as God created the earth. Well, no, if you understand the book, that can't happen. Nothing existed before God. So it's important for us to understand when was this book written, why was this book written, and who wrote this book? All right, Moses wrote the book of Genesis during the period of the Exodus. If you've seen Prince of Egypt, you know a little bit about that. Right? It's when God was leading the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery and into Canaan, their promised land. Okay? Moses was writing this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to teach the Israelites about himself and about their heritage. Okay, that was his purpose. So you get, you get the picture here. Um, the Israelites are in slavery for 400 years. They've lost their heritage. They don't understand where they come from. All they know is slavery. All they know is bondage. All they know is this man, this God-man called Pharaoh, who claims to be God, has ruled over them 400 years. That means my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, all they knew was slavery. So we're generations into this, and the Israelites have forgotten who they were. They're forgot, they, they don't understand um, the creation account of the world. They're, they're believing the lies of the Egyptians. They're, they're caught up in this pagan empire, and they don't know what's going on. And then this God reveals himself to this guy who was raised in Pharaoh's court, raised in Pharaoh's own house, this Israelite, this Hebrew that was raised there. God reveals himself to him and says, I'm going to go tell you and you're going to let my people go. And we kind of know the story. I wish I could get into that. It's in the book of Exodus. But he, 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 after the stutterer, stuttering Moses obeys and he, del- and, he, and he works this and God shows his mighty powerful hand and he stupefies the Egyptians and Pharaoh and he leads them out, right? Through a bunch of miracles. 
But guess what? These people walking out of Egypt didn't know the God who did this. They didn't know about their history. They didn't remember these things. They're walking out into a desert. And if you know the story, a lot of complaining, a lot of doubt, a lot of fear going on. They're ready to turn back and go back to, go back to Egypt. All right? So Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God enables him to write the book of Genesis to teach these slaves that are coming out of Egypt, to teach them where you come from, to teach them about the patriarchs, to teach them about Abraham, to teach them about faith, to remind them of the covenant. To, that's why he's writing this. Okay? Therefore, at, and, and this is important for understanding the book, Genesis is not exhaustive. It's not meant to be a genealogy of all the nations of the earth. It was not meant to be an encyclopedia that tracked all cultures and all nations and all religions and all societies that have ever ever existed. It's meant to show you the history of one. The people that have been chosen by God. So the main thrust of the book of Genesis is this. The God who made a covenant with the Hebrews and the Israelites, who led them out of Pharaoh's courts, In Pharaoh's slavery, that God who revealed himself to the Israelites is the same God who created everything. And this is a huge claim because in that time of Pharaoh, if you know anything, it was polytheistic. They believed in multiple gods. There was no, nobody claimed to be the one true God. The Egyptians had gods over the Nile and gods over the creation and gods over, you know, they had just multiple gods. All right. But this God who led Israel out of slavery is claiming to be the one God who created everything. Number two, Israel is therefore heir to a divine covenant promise with God. So there's something special about Israel. And for those of you in in here, I'm just going to give us a little taste of what's coming in the future. Israel, and Hebrews 11 tells us, Israel, we are talking about a geographic people and we are talking about a specific nation, but even more specifically, we're talking about people who embrace this covenant, embrace this God by faith. So we are heirs now to what Israel, when when he's talking about Israel and and, and the covenant that God made with Israel, we are now heirs to that because it was was a covenant by faith. We're going to get there. Israel has failed, this is number three, that this book is going to show us all about. Israel has failed and they've broken their covenant over and over and over. And they deserve death. They deserve damnation. They broke the covenant with the Almighty God. They deserve nothing but hell. But number four, God is faithful to His covenant even when His people are terribly unfaithful. God is faithful even when we are terribly unfaithful. So all that to say is that Genesis is the beginning of the gospel. Now, I doubt very few of you read the book of Genesis and you're just like, here's the gospel. Woo, I'm excited about it. You usually get a couple chapters into it and you're like, what in the world is going on right here? Right? So we're gonna, I can't wait to walk, walk you through this and I can't wait to dig into it together. The history that is told in Genesis is the history of God's covenant. The history of man's failure, the history of God's plan of redeeming his people, and then through them, restoring the world. It's the beginning of the gospel. I'm so stoked to dig into this book and show you how it is just soaked in the gospel, and it's soaked in grace. 
My prayer is that you would never read the Old Testament the same again after going through this series. So Genesis 1 starts out to tell a story, a story of redemption. It's important for us to understand that the book of Genesis is what is called, in its, in its narrative context, it's what's called as a historical, um, a historical narrative. Okay, It's a historical narrative. I mean, it's literary context. It's a historical narrative. Now, I'm going to quote from the... the um, the commentary that I sent to you guys. Some critics have uh, postulated that Genesis is not literally history, but it's rather a myth, like a legend or some fairy tale intended to communicate ideals or morals, but not meant to be taken literally as fact. But I want to show you this hypothesis has a number of flaws, and I'm going to give you three really quick. First, the concept of myth or legend was completely foreign to Hebrew thought and life. They didn't, they didn't do it. They didn't have myth. They didn't write down legends. It was completely contrary to uh, the Hebraic way of thought. Second, Genesis is consistently organized around historical places, historical events, and historical people, including many lengthy genealogies, which is completely unlike the telling of a myth. <laughs> the point of telling a myth is that it's actually catchy, Right? You're not going to go through beget, 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 right? Close the book. No, thank you. Third, with, when the, with the rest of Scripture, particularly, particularly the teachings of Jesus, they speak of people, places, and events in Genesis, and they are treated as straightforward fact and not myth. Therefore, the, concepts, the concept of Genesis being a myth is, ba- is, is really an imposition that people place on a book. It's not warranted from the book itself or the rest of Scripture, which points back to Genesis as a literal historical fact. So this brings up a good point. When we come to Genesis, how should we read it? How should we read this book? We come to this as it's literal fact. Like this is real people, real places. It's describing what really went on. That's what we're learning as we come to Genesis. Now listen, this is what... Since the scientific revolution and since, you know, I I don't want to get in that too much, but many times our professors in college and people come to the book like this. Well, I know this isn't real. Well, I know that this could never happen. Well, we know because we're enlightened now, if you're familiar with the enlightenment train of thought, we know that miracles don't happen. We know that people can't live 900 years long. We know. And they bring all of this baggage of what they know to the Bible. And they therefore say, well, that can't be true. That can't be true. That can't be true. So this must be a myth. And that is very, that's a very cultural assessment of it. It's bringing cultural assumptions that we have because we live in this day and age when people for thousands of years came to the Bible saying, this is the word of God. Tell me what I should know. Tell me what I should believe. And I'm going to ask that we take that humble position and we come to Scripture and we say, Scripture, you tell us what's reality, even if science, even if maybe my professors, even if some other people disagree or argue with it, you tell us what to believe here and let's put everything else under the authority of the Word of God. And that's what we try to do at Sacred City. And that's what I'm going to try to do here. Now, it doesn't mean, and I hope you, the way I'm presenting this, I hope you understand, it does not mean that we click off our brain. Well, it's just better faith. Just click off your brain. Just become a zombie, a Jesus zombie or something, right? No, absolutely not. 
There are very educated reasons for believing what we believe. There are very educated and logical reasons for believing in the creation account. We're going to go through some of those right now or soon. Okay, so these are real events that happened in a real place in time. Genesis is not a myth or a parable. It's a totally different type of literature. Okay, now there are parables in the scripture. Jesus was fond of telling parables, but this is not one of them. So Moses here is retelling a story of past events to the Israelites as they are leaving Egyptian slavery for the purpose of instruction. He wanted them to know the God who was delivering them from the most powerful ruler on the face of the planet, the man who claimed to be a God, Pharaoh. So Moses is writing to the few million refugees that are on the run in hopes of getting their own land and becoming their own nation. And Moses starts with God. Moses starts the book of Genesis like this. In the beginning, God. Moses begins with God. Why? Because nobody else was there in the beginning. That's why. This is why there is absolutely no scientific way to come to a concrete solution about how the world came into existence because no one was there to see it and no one can recreate it in a lab. This is what it would demand of a scientist. Scientist, take nothing and make something. Good luck with that. In order to be there at the beginning, that's what he would have to do. Take nothing and create something. Obviously, an impossibility. So we can hypothesize and we can philosophize about, but in the end, there's just speculation and educated guesses. We cannot know about creation from any other way except revelation. We can either speculate or we can receive through revelation. So that is what God did. God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, revealed himself to Moses and told him to write down this book. And that same Holy Spirit is who we rely on this morning to help us read it, to help us study it, and help us understand it. So in this first sentence, Moses shows us the foundation of everything to come. This is what the whole story is going to be about. God is the creator. He created everything that is And that God who created everything in the past is also the God who is rescuing them in the present and who will renew all things in the future. That God is in control right now. Hebrew scholars say that these words, in the beginning, that when something has a beginning, it obviously leads to the fact that it will have an end or there, it's, the, it's a story that's going somewhere. So Hebrew scholars say this. When you hear the phrase, in the beginning, the end is hanging in the room. Okay? The book of Genesis tells us the beginning of all things, but it also points us to the end of all things. Scripture tells us that Jesus was there in the beginning, that he is the Alpha, but he's also the Omega, that the same God that created the beginning is also the God that's got the end planned out. Genesis sets the stage for the renewal of all things in the new heavens and the new earth. And I want you to hear this. Genesis really is, and this creation account really is God setting the stage. God is building the stage where he wants his story of redemption to plan out. 
He's saying, I'm going to create everything and I want to reveal myself to my creation through me coming. And this story of redemption, this drama of redemption, I want it to play out on this stage. So he creates the world. He fashions the world for his purposes. The beginning begets the end and sets the stage and puts the story in motion. So if we want to understand the last things, the things that are to come, it's important for us to understand the first things because all of Scripture tells us that the last things will be like the first things. So in the beginning, that's where we're at right now, in the beginning, God. The word God here is Elohim. All right, the Hebrew word is Elohim. It is used for God in reference to his universality over all nations and people. But one thing that we're going to notice, I'm going to help us notice early on, is when Moses wants to talk about God's election and God's choosing of his people, Israel, he doesn't use the word Elohim. He uses the word Yahweh. He strategically uses the word Yahweh. Okay, so right away, so some people... Uh, you know, atheistic scholars and other people that, that want to impose their belief, they say, well, right there, we're talking about polytheism right there. There's more than one God. There's this God called Elohim and there's this God called Yahweh. And what, it's so brilliant what, what Moses is doing. When he talks about God being God over everything, that he has creator rights over everything, he uses the word Elohim. But when he talks about God's intimacy with his chosen people, he uses the word Yahweh. This shows us that Israel and God's people who know him have a special name for him. Those that know God in a covenant way call him Yahweh. See, a lot of people call me Justin, right? Some people call me pastor, but only a few call me daddy. See, I have a special relationship with my children. In the same way, the Israelites have a special relationship with God and therefore they have an intimate name for him. You'll be able to see this most of the time as you read the book of Genesis, you're going to be able to see it in your ESV Bible because they will use the word God. And when they use the word God, it's Elohim. When they use the word Lord, all caps, Lord, that's Yahweh. It's indicating a special covenant relationship with a specific type of people. In the beginning, this God created. Now, the Hebrew word for created, and I'm not going to, once we get rolling, guys, this is the only probably week that I'm gonna really going to be going word for word because we're going so small. It's going to be bigger picture from here, here on out. But I want you to get this sense. The Hebrew word for created right there. We lose it in our English translation and we miss the meaning. It's the Hebrew word bara, B-A-R-A. Bar. And a lot of this is in your commentary. You can, you can read it. I tell you that because it's a word that is only used of God. This term means that once God created everything, it was complete. All the necessary chemicals, properties, mass, form, substances, they all existed. Energy, it all existed. And now everything could be formed in any way that we see fit. So when I go out and, and I create uh, a shed. Okay. I'm not creating bara a shed. I am building a shed. I am forming a shed. I am 
creating a shed out of material that already exists. I'm taking wood that used to be a tree and it's been formed for lumber and now I'm forming that and shaping that into a shed. I, didn't, I kind of created that, but I didn't bara created that. This word bara in the Hebrew means the uncreated creator. There's nothing. There exists nothing but God. And he says, hmm, I'll create everything. Boom. Out of nothing, something existed. Out of no substance came substance. Okay? It's only happened once. It's only happened once. And not only some substance, but all substance. I love the way that God creates, man. This shows that God has immeasurable greatness, immeasurable power, immeasurable majesty. He didn't just create corn. He created corn to multiply and keep on creating corn. Because of God's generosity and abundance, the apple tree doesn't just produce one apple, but it produces thousands of apples. And then it begets more and more and more and more. In the beginning, God created. Okay? And then Moses goes on. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? This term, the heavens and the earth. Oh, man, I hate to do this, but I'm going to have to do it. It's called a merism. Okay? This term, heaven and earth, it's called a merism. Now, there, that was my one nerd term that I'm allowed to use each sermon. Okay? Merism is a statement... That of opposites that indicates totality. Okay, this is, let me just break it down for you. This is what it means. When I say, uh, that guy is a Christian from head to toe. Right? That's a merism. It means from the top to the bottom. It means every belly button? Yes, belly button included. Okay, it means all of it. When I say, that guy works day and night. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say, he works all the time. He works all the time. Okay? It's called a merism. All right? When I say part and parcel, merism. Okay? When he says he created the heavens and the earth, and that, earth, that word earth is actually better translated land. He created the heavens and the land, which is very important to, to understand as we progress and see how the Israelites were, were being pulled away from slavery and they, were, they had a promised land to go to. And God is reminding them, I built the land. Therefore, it's mine. So I know there's some people over there, but I'm going to give it to who I choose to give it to because I own it. I've made it, so I own it. All right? So when God is saying, or when Moses is saying here, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's saying everything above, beneath, anything you can think of, he made it. Alligators? Yes, he created alligators. All right? Galaxies? Yes, he created galaxies. Everything is included in this merism, this, this term. Okay, so this is Moses' way of saying that God created absolutely everything from the heavens to the earth and everything in between. This God created it all. So the Bible and the book of Genesis starts out with God, a God of order, a God of power, a God who existed before the end, or before the beginning and is in total control as he allows his story of redemption to unfold until the end. He created the beginning and he creates the end. And this is important. I, I wanted to, to really get scientific and do a bunch of stuff, but we might do it later on. I might do it through seminary, Sacred City Seminary. I don't know how I'm going to do it. But it's interesting if you start looking at the, the intricacy of which our, our, our planet is held together. 
the amount of oxygen, the, the, the distance from the sun, that if we're any closer to the sun, we burn up. If, we any, if we're any farther away from the sun, we freeze to death. The intricacy of which our planet is held together. That I don't, I don't walk out and hope in the morning that I don't get sucked up into the atmosphere and disappear. That gravity exists all the time, every day. It's a gift, right? That when I plant something and I water it and the sun shines, it grows. I don't have to wonder. It's going to grow. Our, the earth and the world has been formed with absolute and attention to detail. And I want to juxtapose this to another form of, um, or another theory or another creation account, and that of evolution. And I'm not going to go into all the... Man, I would love to... I could talk for hours just on, on the theory of evolution and, and the theory of cre- and, and the creation account, but I can't do that. If you want to talk about that later, if you want to post some stuff on the city, I'd be willing to engage in, in a dialogue. Um, but the evolutionist says that we literally sprang from nothing for nothing and in the end will end in nothing. The evolutionist says there is absolutely no meaning for life. It was an absolute and total accident. The evolutionist believes that life somehow sprang from non-life, of which there is absolutely no physical evidence or reproducible model of this ever occurring or ever being recreated in a lab. They believe that intelligence somehow sprouted from unintelligence. And somehow the personal developed from something that was impersonal. Like there was all of a sudden some kind of chemical and all of a sudden, I'm a person. I have emotions, right? Moss has emotions. I don't want to make fun. I don't want to make fun. But it is kind of funny if you really think about it. Tell me, when has chaos ever produced organization on its own? If everything's an accident, and order doesn't just flow out of accidents, order doesn't just flow out of chaos. Um, you know, I don't. I'm not. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty young, but I don't recall ever seeing a random tornado rush through a town, destroy homes, rip apart buildings, and then create a Ferris wheel. Right? It would be really cool if that happened, but it just doesn't happen. Form and order never flows from chaos and in order. Chaos needs an intelligent designer to take, to form from the chaos and create order. There has to be intelligence that breeds intelligence. Personhood that gives birth to personhood. Personhood never flows out of chaos. I really wish that I could ride my Harley and just sit it in the garage and it would get shinier and newer. It doesn't happen that way, right? If I just sit my bike there, what happens? It disintegrates. It's a law of disintegration. Things disintegrate. Things move towards chaos. They don't move towards order naturally. You don't go into your kid's room for a week, right? Is it going to be neater than the last time you saw it? Or are you going to have to search for the floor? Right? Things in our world, things in our society, things in the universe, they 
They lead and they lean and they move towards chaos always. They don't naturally flow towards order. But the Bible shows us that our God is the reason behind the order of our cosmos. He created it all for his purposes. Now listen, this is important. Uh, We're not denying, I want you to hear this, we're not denying the possibility of micro-evolution. Like a squirrel could adapt to its environment and a squirrel could be a brown squirrel, it could be a black squirrel, it could be a red squirrel. Okay? As Christians, we're not denying micro-evolution. We're denying macro-evolution, that that squirrel could somehow adapt and become president. Okay? That's what we're denying. Squirrels can be squirrels, can be squirrels of different colors, and, and they can have longer nails and shorter nails. That kind of microevolution that a squirrel could adapt to its environment, that's not what we're denying. We're denying that it can change species. Okay? All of a sudden, <laughs> through much, I don't, I'm not going to get into I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to get into that. Okay? Macroevolution is a religious position. Macroevolution. Big picture, that species somehow jump from one species to another species is a religious position that demands that everything... Listen, that, that religious position demands faith, a lot of faith. It demands faith that everything that exists, when you look around, everything that exists is the result of one, not even one, thousands of giant accidents. And the smartest evolutionists and atheists in the world, when I would say this, they would say, yes, you're right. If you've read, I've read some of the new, the new atheists is what they're called. Christopher Hitchens, these type of guys. And they they say, yeah, you're right. It is. It's one, a millions of accidents. That takes, that position demands a great amount of faith. Now this was started and postulated by a guy named Charles Darwin, right? I'm sure you've heard of him. This position is taught in the majority of public schools across our nation. This theory, this theory is taught. And as parents who need to shepherd and guard your children, you need to be teaching them the biblical position, all right? And not just, uh, well, we believe, you know, they, they need to have the logical ability to argue, to understand the position that it's not just blind faith that we're accepting this in, but there are some good reasons for it, okay? I'm sure maybe more than likely that you heard of um, the book that he wrote called The Origin of the Species. How many have heard of The Origin of the Species, right? A lot of people have heard of The Origin of the Species. He wrote it in 1859, okay? But listen to this. This is how historians love to bend and shape things for their own ends and their own goals. Does anybody know what the original title of that book was? When he published it, what the title was, was changed. I'm going to read it to you. It's really obnoxious, okay? It's a really obnoxious title. It's a really long title, but this is it. I want you to pick it up. Here's the original title that was titled by Darwin. The Origin of the Species by Means of Natural Selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle of life. The origin of the species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. See, apparently your science teacher would be okay with you being an evolutionist and an atheist, but not a racist like Darwin. 
He believed it was okay for dominant races to destroy other races. He believed the aborigine would be wiped off the face of the planet because they were dumb. And that was okay. That is the survival of the fittest. That is natural selection. Strong, kill the weak. And that's how we progress. That's how we evolve as a people. Evolution was the foundation on which Hitler built his Nazi regime. He believed that it was okay to wipe out the Jews because they are a step back on the evolutionary chain. They are weak and evolution demands that the strong kill the weak in order for progress to be made. I posted a com- that commentary on the city that's going to go into a whole lot more detail about creation, a whole lot more detail about evolution. Again, I, I really want you to, to read it. But for now, I want you to hear the radical differences in the worldviews that these two creation accounts give. The Bible says that there is a loving and all-powerful God behind the curtain. That he created everything to serve his purpose, to, to play out his plan, his plan of redemption. And when we can't understand what the heck is going on, he's still in control and he's designed all things to end the way he wants them to end in the renewal of all things. Even when we don't understand it. We're not God. We don't understand why everything happens the way it happens. We can't get our minds around it because we're not, we're not the creator. We're part of the creation. And so many, so many of my friends that I've met, so many people, they say, well, if... I could never believe in a God like this because blah, 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 this, I don't like this. I don't like the way this happens. I don't like that, 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 good, that bad things happen to good people. So I could never, if that's the way God is, I'll, I could never believe in him. And that is, I try to reason and I say, that is just such a proud statement. It's, it's inevitably saying, if I were God, this is how I would do things. Well, there's a big if there. You're not God. And in your brain that is not God, could there conceivably be reasons that God would allow things that you don't know of? Could there be reasons that he has because his mind is above us and his ways are above us and he knows infinitely everything about every person on the planet, every detail on the planet. Could he have a reason for allowing suffering that you don't know about? And if you have to admit yes, then you have to admit you're not God and your way is foolish. We, we need to trust the creator. But on the other hand, so that, that, that's, what, that's what the Bible says. There's an intelligent designer. There's a loving God. There's a loving creator that's working all things out for his purposes. But on the other hand, evolution says that everything that exists, I love, if you, you want to challenge an evolution, ask him the purpose of love. They have no purpose of love. Lust, they've got a purpose for lust. They've got a Monogamy, they they can't describe monogamy because natural selection says a man should want to plant his seed in every woman on the planet to continue the race. They have all the reason in the world for lust. They have no reason for love. Love is beyond them. Monogamy doesn't make sense to natural selection. So everything that the evolutionist says and everything they believe, it's a result of billions of subsequent accidents. And therefore, listen to this, the only 
moral imperatives that can be deduced from evolution is the survival of the fittest. It's the only moral imperatives that can come from it. Do you realize that evolutionists have no foundation for morality whatsoever? None. Not that they don't have morals. Many evolutionists, many uh, you know, atheists, they have morals. The problem is they just jump into Christianity, they borrow our morals, and then they take them over to evolutionists. But I don't want God to tell me what to do. But don't steal. Whoa, whoa, what? See, if we're a result of a billion accidents, then how can there be right and wrong? Survival of the fittest in evolution says that might makes right. If I'm strong enough, I should be able to take what I want and kill those who get in my way. If evolutionists want to stop the survival of the fittest, then they'll be trying to stop their own theory of evolution. But the Bible tells us that God created this planet for his own purposes, for his own glory. He allowed Adam and Eve to pollute it with their sin in order so that he could send his son, Jesus Christ, into a world where we could punish him where we could inflict pain on him, where we could literally kill the spotless son of God. Why did God allow evil? I know one reason. So that evil could kill his son and prove his undying love for us and his creation. Scripture says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her. Why did God allow sin? Why did God allow evil? Why did God allow pain? I know one reason, so that he could feel it himself. So it can't be that he's just some bully in the sky who doesn't care about us. He doesn't care about our pain. He doesn't care about our struggles. He's felt it himself. So why would evolutionists want to believe that that just, I mean, I hate to to narrow the, the, the theory down. It's crap happens. I mean, that, that's, there's no reason behind anything. We're, we're here by chance and happenstance and we'll die and become dust again and there's nothing we can do about it. Why would they want to push that theory? Listen, Romans 1 tells us. Romans 1 says, because of our sin, because of what we're going to learn Adam and Eve did, that we all have this inherent original sin, is what theologians call it, that there's this sin inside of us. And the sin inside of us doesn't just make us do bad things. It makes us want to do bad things. It makes us want to have something other than God rule our life. Namely, us. We want to take the creation and worship it and fashion our own God in our own image. Why do the secularists and evolutionists want no God and want to believe this theory? Because it makes themselves God of their own life. Nobody can tell me who to love. Nobody can tell me if I should stay in a marriage. Nobody can tell me who I can have sex with. Nobody can tell me how I want to handle my money. Nobody can tell me how to rule my life and rule my world. I can do it, as Sinatra said, my way. And every one of us, and I want you to hear this, Christian and unchristian, all of us have that desire inside of us. We all want to do it our way. 
And God starts off the whole Bible. Or Moses starts off the whole Bible trying to shake us from the stupor caused by sin. In the beginning, God, deal with it. You weren't there. I was. The burden of proof to prove the existence of God isn't on us. Disprove him. I've read the work of the new atheists. No one has a cogent argument. You can't disprove God. Do we need to prove him? Absolutely not. We don't need to prove him. In the beginning, God. The uncreated creator. That's who we worship. That's who we know. And he built this whole world to work out his plan of redemption. To show us that he isn't just away from us watching us and laughing. <laughs> Look how foolish they are. He entered his creation. He wrote himself into his drama. He wrote himself into his play. And he's the starring role. Jesus Christ, the son of God, was the starring role. And he felt the pain. He felt the weight of sin. He felt the hurt of the world. He felt it all worse than we could ever feel on the cross of Christ. And he died there for his chosen people. He died there for his church. He died there for those who'd placed their faith in the work. And now, as the song that we sang, nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood, not my own righteousness. I don't come to God and say I'm a good person now and I'm moral and I have the right position now and I'm not an evolutionist anymore, so I'm better. and I'm not homosexual, so I'm better somehow. And there's not this dividing wall by moralistic reasons. I stand in nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. Believers, unbelievers, every person on the planet has an innate desire to be God themselves, and that is sin. It's the root of all sin. I don't want him to tell me what to do. Come on. He doesn't know me. I got an excuse. There's a reason I do this. He didn't have my mama, right? He didn't grow up in my neighborhood. I didn't have anything. We all have reasons, but none of them are good enough. We have an innate desire to be God. And the only thing that will free us from that is an absolute submission to the real God. To say, God, I can barely balance my checkbook. How could I think I could run the world? Right? God, I can barely keep my grass green. And you built everything. I submit to you. I can never be good enough to get your love. I can never earn it. I can never be moral enough. But the blood of Christ gives me his perfect record. It wipes away all my sin, all my shame. And it points to the future of a day where I'll have a new body and I'll be a new creation in Christ completely, not just spiritually, not just internally. And there'll be no presence of sin anymore beginning shows us what the end is going to look like. So I'm excited to dig into this book of Genesis. I'm excited to work through and see what God had planned and and how God's been working out his his plan of redemption. And for you this morning, I don't care if you think you're a Christian. I don't care if you call yourself a believer. I don't care what you believe or, or, or call yourself right now. I'm asking you, are you submitted to the almighty God? Have you placed your life in front of him? Have you laid it down at the cross and said, you are God 
tell me what to do. You are God, tell me what to believe. You are God, order my life, teach me your ways. That's what it means to be a Christian. We say, we worship the real God, not his creation. As we come this morning and we take part of the Lord's Supper, man, it's just, it's so shocking to me when I think about one of the reasons God created trees was so he could hang his son on them. One of the reasons God created thorns is so they could make a crown and press it on his son's head. One of the reasons they, he made the ability to bleed is so that his son's blood could cleanse us from sin. One of the reasons he made bread is so that we could take part today in breaking that bread that represents and symbolizes his body that was broken for us. And one of the reasons he made grapes was so they could ferment, praise God, and make wine. Or grape juice, we've got them both. God did this. God's in control. God's ordering all things. And we get to serve that God. And he's not just, listen, for some of you, he's not just, he doesn't just want to be Elohim. You can't stop that. He is. You can hate him. You can shake your fist at him. You're going to meet him. You're going to stand before him and go, oh, whoops. Right? You can hate him all you want. He, but he doesn't just want to be your Elohim. He wants to be your Yahweh. We see in Jesus Christ, Jesus used the word Abba, which is the Greek word daddy, to describe his relationship with the Father. He had an intimate covenant relationship. And only on the cross, only on the cross in the hour of his desperation, did, God call, or did Jesus call God, God. The only time, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so you could be brought in. He was pushed out so you could be drawn near. So I ask this morning that you would place your faith in Jesus Christ, that you would turn from your own efforts at self-salvation, your own efforts at being your own God, you would turn from those and you would embrace him by faith. I ask that you would do that this morning. If you're a believer, I ask that you would check your heart, that you would repent of your sin, that you would turn from your efforts of self-salvation and moralism, and that you would embrace the righteousness of Christ as we take part in the Lord's Supper together. So men who are going to serve, if you would come and help me serve this morning.